The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul could have sung that song. Did you think that as she was singing that? Keep me set apart from the plans that they're making. Driving me from the town. Jesus could have sang that song. Both um, family members, whether blood family or flesh and blood, sons and daughters of Abraham family, in both cases, both Paul and Jesus could have sung that song. Does, um, does family ever frustrate you? <laughs> Maybe even right now? It's like asking, is, is the sky blue, right? Do you ever find yourself tied in knots over something your family has done? If you answered yes, there may be something here in God's Word for you this morning. If you answered no, then please see me after the service because you may not be human. Even Jesus would answer yes to those questions. And as we'll see in a minute, Paul would too, I'm sure. So I'm thinking chances are pretty good that we can all relate to the challenge that family or close relationships often present. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 14. Acts 14. We've been following Paul and Barnabas around, haven't we? Following Paul and Barnabas around on Paul's first missionary journey. His missions trip, you remember, was launched by the Holy Spirit from the church in Antioch about 12 years after Jesus called Paul in Acts 9 to carry Jesus' name to both Jew and Gentile. And you may recall their first stop is the island of Cyprus, where Paul has a showdown with the false prophet Elymas. And as a result, even Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus, that's a mouthful, even Sergius Paulus believes when he sees God's power and hears God's teaching about Jesus through Paul. Next, Paul and Barnabas go to Pisidian Antioch where Paul preaches an encouraging message. If you scan with me chapter 13, you can see Paul's message is not quite as long as mine tend to be, but he got close there in Acts 13. A message of encouragement. Encouraging message that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins and what theologians call justification or making things right between us and God, Excuse me. That through Jesus, things are made right between us and God. And that's available to anyone and everyone who believes in Jesus. And you remember the results in Pisidian Antioch are mixed. Many believe, but not everyone does. And those who don't believe, particularly a group of Jews there, who apparently are very well connected with the rich and famous movers and shakers, high up, muckety-muck, Pisidian Antiochians. They stir up persecution, we read, against Paul and Barnabas. And, And they even get the government, it seems, to officially expel them from the region. And that brings us this morning, somewhere along the road between Pisidian Antioch 
and the next city of Iconium, somewhere along that 90-mile road. I'm reading in Acts 14, the first seven verses. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. And there they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot. Ever notice how, how plots are always afoot? Never an arm or a leg. Never mind. It's called, yeah. <laughs> there was a plot afoot, just keep reading, among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. These are the very words of God. Amen? Amen. A few weeks ago, we touched ever so briefly on how Paul goes directly to the Jewish synagogue whenever he arrives in a new town. Do you remember? This morning, I'd like to expand on that a bit. But before I do, one brief housekeeping note. You may notice your bulletins have a few verses about Paul's next stop in Lystra. That was my fault. I'm sorry. Somewhere between the printing of the bulletins and my final sermon prep, God had me stop in Iconium for a bit longer than I originally planned. So we'll get to Lystra next week. Or I should say we'll get to Lystra next week, Lord willing. So just consider the front of your bulletin advanced prep for next week, okay? And you have right there on the front of your bulletin the answer to that question you've all been dying to hear of why Barnabas might have been a large man. So I've made it too easy for you. Go ahead and read that quickly if you like, and you'll see why Barnabas maybe had been a large man. This morning, as we just read in Acts 14, verse 1, Paul went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. Now, there are theologians and teachers out there who like to teach that the Old Testament is about God's relationship with the Jews, and the New Testament is about God's relationship with Gentiles. Test this Friday. And there's something in us that's deeply satisfied by such a black and white approach, isn't there? There's something appealing about a nice, clear Jew versus Gentile line in the sand between the Testaments. For one, it allows us to create neat and tidy theological boxes. And we like neat and tidy theological boxes. They're easier to study and to understand, I suppose. But in this case, at least, an absolute line in the sand between Jew and Gentile is not so simply drawn. There is a simple and clear biblical line in the sand throughout both Testaments. It's the one between believers and non-believers between the righteous and the wicked, between good and evil, 
It's the line between those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. That one's clear. But when we try and jam a Jew versus Gentile distinction into that list, there's a real danger. A real danger of missing the fact that many Jews in the New Testament believed in Jesus. In fact, the early church was chuck full of believing Jews. They are among the charter members. They're a huge part of the foundation of the church. Those who want a a bright line distinction between all Jew and all Gentile, or who want a bright line between the Testaments, quote verses like the one we read a couple of weeks ago from Acts 13, verse 46, where Paul says to a group of Jews in Pisidian Antioch, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourself worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Wow. Paul's really frustrated with them there, isn't he? Since you're not worthy of eternal life, he says. Can you feel that frustration? Maybe even a tinge of sarcasm? Bright line enthusiasts stack up verses like this one out of their greater biblical context, in my opinion, as we'll see. And then they conclude things like, see, here's where there's a shift. Here's where Paul stops trying to convince Jews that Jesus is Messiah. Here's where God turns from the Jew to the Gentile. But wait a minute. Just a few verses later, It's still up on the screen, verse 14, verse 1. Look at what happens in the very next city Paul visits. There he goes again, making a beeline to the Jewish synagogue. And guess who you find? Don't think too hard. Guess who you find in Jewish synagogues? Jews, go figure. And Paul never stops going to the Jew first. He does it throughout his life relentlessly he never makes that clean shift never once and for all draws that would-be line in the sand between all jews and gentiles do you know that one of the very last people that paul tries to reach with the gospel of jesus christ is yet another herod if you can believe it we'll get to that story don't let anyone tell you that paul ever stops pursuing his fellow jews he even goes after herod in love with the good news of jesus christ So the question, I guess, becomes, with those two verses on the screen and others like it, how do we reconcile Paul's words in Acts 13, 46 and verses like it with Acts 14, verse 1 and verses like it? How can Paul say to the Jews, that's it, no soup for you? Seinfeld fans, there's like four of you in here. And that sound you hear, the earth moving between your feet, as Paul rolling over in his grave, I just had him quote a soup Nazi of all things. But you get the idea. And then immediately after that, marches into the very next synagogue he comes across to offer Jews the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul does this often. He seemingly goes back and forth all the time on this issue. No more Jews, he finally says gets disgusted and says and then we read just a few lines down paul went as usual into the jewish synagogue 
Is he schizophrenic? And he keeps doing that. What's up with that? One possible explanation is that in Acts 13, Paul only means the Jews in Pisidian Antioch and not everywhere in the world, and that's a possibility. Another possibility, however, a, a stronger one in, in my personal opinion, given that Scripture repeatedly tells us that many Jews believe in Jesus wherever Paul goes, is that when Paul talks about, or Luke writes about, the Jews, in many contexts at least, it's a shorthand way of saying the non-believing Jews, or the Jews who absolutely refuse to believe even after Paul debates with them for months, Jews. And make no mistake about it, those Jews that don't believe are one stubborn, tough, gritty bunch. And they make life miserable for Paul. Now that reconciles the Acts 13s and 14s of the Bible. Paul's not talking about the Jews who believe in Jesus. Of course not. They were now brothers and sisters in Christ. His comments of moving on to the Gentiles must be made with respect to those Jews who refused Jesus. So we need to be careful when we come across the phrase, the Jews in the New Testament. In these contexts, when they're compared with Gentiles, it, it simply cannot mean all the Jews in the world because many Jews believed in Jesus, including Peter and the disciples, for heaven's sake. And theologians that, that want to draw these sweeping, universal, theological conclusions from an overblown, overdrawn distinction between Jew and Gentile risk at least ignoring the balance of Scripture, which repeats over and over how many Jews believed. And what's happened over the years, unfortunately, and sometimes in us even subconsciously, is that we hear that word Jew in many theological circles at least, and it somehow has become synonymous with non-believer. And that's just not true. Because as I've said, many Jews believed in Jesus in Paul's day. The New Testament is full of them. And many Jews believe in Jesus as Messiah today. There is a line in the sand in the Bible, but it's between believers and non-believers in Jesus Christ. And according to the Bible, at least, that line in the sand does not necessarily fall cleanly between Jew and Gentile, because they're both Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus. So who are the Jews that frustrate Paul throughout his ministry, if they're indeed not all the Jews in the world? Well, they fall into two main camps. We've already identified one. Some of the Jews that oppose Paul are Jews that have not accepted Jesus as Messiah. And we've met a group of them here in Acts 13 and 14. A second, no less determined group of Jews that we probably haven't met quite yet is a group of Jews the Bible later calls Judaizers. I'll bet many of you have come across and have heard that word in your study of Scripture. Judaizers are Jews who, even if they have accepted Jesus as Messiah, they still want to require Gentiles to obey the law, to obey the letter of Torah. 
So these are the two main groups of Jews at least. These are the Jews that frustrate and oppose Paul. Certainly not the Jews who believed in Jesus. And again, we need to check contexts carefully when we see the Jews mentioned in the New Testament. We saw already in Acts 9, and we see it again now in Acts 13 and 14, we see very early on in Paul's ministry, it's the sort of love-hate relationship that Paul has with some of his fellow Jews, isn't it? He so badly wants them to believe. He aches to have his fellow Jew accept Jesus as Messiah. It just kills him that they don't. As we'll see next week, it very nearly does kill him, literally. And from time to time throughout his ministry, in my opinion, because of Paul's deep love for his people, the stubborn refusal of some Jews, some of them finally frustrate Paul so much, he finally just loses it with them. Loses his patience with them. There's lots of evidence in the text that Paul is not a patient man. Maybe we'll talk about that sometime, especially near the end of his ministry. But Paul, from time to time, finally ends up, as we see at the end of chapter 13, shaking the dust from his feet when it comes to some of his fellow Jews. It a, was a Jewish practice, an Eastern practice, that if you wanted to symbolize you wanted nothing more to do with anyone anymore, you would walk to the edge of their town and you would shake. You don't even... You're so disgusted with them, you don't want to even want the dirt of their city on your foot. So you see Paul stalk out. <laughs> Doesn't quite work today, but to them that was big, okay? I want nothing more to do with you guys, since you're not interested in eternal life. And then he lashes out at them. You know, maybe not no soup for you, but something like, I've had enough. I'm going to the Gentiles. Let's go, Barnabas. And away Paul marches down the road to the next town. Probably not in the best of spirits. I don't know. But then, perhaps somewhere along the road, on the way, perhaps Barnabas, whose name you now know means encourager, good, son of encouragement. Is it any wonder that God has someone called encourager along with Paul? He needs it often, doesn't he? Good old Barney, the Jewish Levite priest. I wonder if he was purple. Probably not. Tough crowd. Thank you, Danny. Danny like that. <laughs> Good old Barney. A big Jewish Levite priest, perhaps Barney, comes quietly alongside Paul, matches his stride as they're walking together down the road to the next town. This morning, between Acts 13 and 14, the road is 90 miles long between, between Pisidian Antioch and Iconium, and that's typical. Turkey is really spread out. 90 miles is wider even than the whole country of Israel. 90 miles is the distance between West Bowles Community Church and Vail. I map-quested that last night. 92.3 miles from here. to Can you imagine walking that? And that's a pretty good picture because Turkey has a lot of mountains too. And even though Rome was 
kind enough to build some very nice roads for God's gospel to walk along. Thank you, Caesar. It still took days to walk 90 miles. I mean, can you imagine what it would take to just start walking from here to Vail, even down I-70? It would take forever. And so there were plenty of time. There was plenty of time for Barnabas to come alongside his rather frustrated friend and maybe even around an evening campfire. And there sits Paul, staring into the fire, perhaps, after dinner and just before bed. Can you picture him there, staring into the fire? And maybe he's muttering to Barnabas or to himself, muttering something like, Expel us from the city, will they? Why God ever chose that stubborn lot of us Jews as his chosen people, I will never know. Oh, that one guy in Antioch, what was his name? Avram. I can still hear him. But Moses said, but Moses said, but Moses said. Blasphemy. He stuck his finger in him. Blasphemy, he said to me. I tell you what, Barnabas, if I never talk to another Jew again, it will be too soon. And maybe Barney sits in silence a bit, just letting Paul vent like good encouragers do. And then maybe eventually Barnabas gets up from where he's sitting and and goes and sits on the log next to Paul and starts to put his arm around Paul's shoulders. And at first Paul says, don't. But Barnabas, relentless encourager that he is, waits a few more moments. and, And then again, quietly encourages Paul, be patient with the sons and daughters of Abraham, Paul. After all, Paul, it's a pretty big pill they have to swallow. That the Messiah came and went and they missed him. And not only that, that our Jewish leaders, our representatives officially before Almighty God, not only missed him, but worked the Roman system to have him killed. My goodness, Paul, that, that's got to be the biggest Homer Simpson don't like ever. Give them time, my eager, passionate friend. Be patient with them. And then maybe Barnabas says something like, And remember, Paul, remember what it took for you to believe. It took Messiah himself to literally knock you to the ground and to blind you in order to convince you. Remember? So maybe these Jews don't have the corner on the market of stubbornness, Paul. Please be patient with them. And then maybe Paul reflects a bit on what Barnabas has said. and After thinking about it, he, he finally asks Barnabas, Who in the world is Homer Simpson? No, he doesn't. No. (laughs) Maybe eventually along the road and and after a few campfires, um, that demonic spirit of frustration loses its grip on Paul. And the Holy Spirit again fills Paul and allows Paul to feel again his love, Paul's love, God's passionate love and compassion for Paul's fellow Jew. 
And by the next town, there he goes again. As determined as ever to the Jew first. And there he goes again, marching into the Jewish synagogue. It's kind of like family sometimes, isn't it? Is there really anyone who can possibly frustrate us more than family? They know where all our buttons are better than anyone, don't they? And we know where theirs are too. And we end up from time to time, don't we, pushing them with glee because we know where they are. And we may end up fighting like cats and dogs with our very own brothers and sisters, but we love them deeply because they're family. And boy, nobody else better mess with them, right? If they do, we'll be right there fighting for them. They're family. See, the Jews are Paul's family. They're his people. Israel is his promised inheritance from God, too. And it's that love of family that ultimately, through the frustration, keeps Paul on that path into the Jewish synagogues, I believe. Keeps Paul steadfastly following, through his frustration, the biblical mandate that the good news of Jesus Christ goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Even though it's frustrating, even though it's hard, even though many of them stubbornly refuse to believe, even though they try and kill him. How far is too far to go for the salvation of your own flesh and blood? How much is too much to bear when eternal life for a brother or sister hangs in the balance? What wouldn't we give to have a lost member of our family found? I've got two applications for us this morning. Actually, if you're keeping official score, it's one application and one related question for us to consider both individually and as a church. First, the application. Who would you identify in your life as the Jews that frustrate and oppose Paul? Who in your life frustrates you? Just think about them. Don't look at them. You're all looking at me. I'm very... Who in your life is a source of deep frustration for you? Perhaps like Paul, because they relentlessly refuse to believe Jesus is Lord and Savior. Do you know anyone like that? I know several of you at least do, because you've shared with me that even your own family members are on that list. And I don't doubt... Many more of you have friends or peers or co-workers or someone you know and care about. And they not only reject Jesus, but they reject you. And they think you're just a Jesus freak or something. And they don't invite you over anymore for dinner. They avoid you and make excuses whenever you try to gather, try to get together. And whenever you try and talk about Jesus... They change the subject or they turn it into a joke. 
or they make fun of you right to your face or maybe even behind your back and and you hear about it through the grapevine and it hurts or maybe it's someone whose salvation isn't at stake maybe it's a fellow brother or sister in Christ who you used to be very very close to but to you at least it seems like they abandoned you or turned on you or or didn't treat you as well as you expected and even if they never literally stoned you it feels like it and it hurts has that ever happened to you do you have anyone like that in your life And maybe you don't have the same custom as Paul did in shaking the dust from your feet. But you've nevertheless made the decision to move on. To have nothing more to do with them because that kind of frustration you just don't need. It's easier to move on. The very thought of continuing in that relationship wells up feelings of frustration and discouragement and, oh, what's the use? If that's you at all, let me first of all assure you of something. Paul knows how you feel. And P.S., Jesus does too. For it was Jesus' people too who rejected him. Even his own blood family called him crazy. Even his own friends, more than friends, his beloved tell me deem, his disciples, even they ran. When he needed them the most. And it hurt. It had to. Paul knows how you feel. And Jesus knows too. If that's you this morning, I, I know it's me. But if that's you too, I'd like to resurrect Barnabas. Resurrect a son of encouragement today for, for just a few minutes here. Don't give up. Be patient with them and don't give up. Get back in there. Love them anyway. Take time away for a bit if you need it. Take a 90-mile walk to Vail if you need to. But then come back. Don't give up and be patient with them. Whether... It's a salvation issue like the one facing Paul, or whether it's a relational issue, even among fellow believers. It's a big pill for people to swallow that they need God. It's a big pill for people to swallow pride, to, to even admit they might have been mistaken in your relationship. So be patient with them. And maybe like Barnabas may have reminded Paul from time to time, remember, we need to remember that we too are, after all, merely sinners saved by grace. Maybe you need to swallow a big pill yourself. Maybe you need to reconsider whether your own pride or indignation or frustration or hurt or anger, there's a fun list. <laughs> Maybe you've been blinded by emotion toward 
admitting your own weaknesses, failures, and fault. Don't give up on those relationships. Be patient with people. Be eager to humble yourself first. Hang in there like Paul did. Hang in there like Jesus did and like Jesus still does. Relationships, especially with those closest to us, are really, really difficult in a fallen world, aren't they? So hang in there. God's power is greater still. And don't forget that truth. Don't lose faith in that. God's power is greater still. Love inevitably conquers all. So hang in there and don't give up on them. Last, a question to ponder. What about the Jews? In short, don't give up on them either. Where's the passionate love of Jesus and the passionate love of Paul for our Jewish brothers and sisters gone, my dear Christian friends? Where's the love of Jesus and the love of Paul for the Jews gone? Did we lose that love when, when Christians and even the church labeled Jews Christ killers and endorsed Jewish persecution? Was the love lost during the Crusades when Christians were given the mandate by the church to kill as many Jews as they could get their hands on while they were trying to capture Jerusalem? Did we lose that love during the Holocaust when the Christian nation of Germany tried to systematically rid the earth of Jews and when the Christian nation of America at first turned a blind eye toward their plight and only committed her full force against the Nazis when her own safety was threatened? Did we lose a bit of God's love of the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph when some of our theologians stereotype every Jew as being about works-based righteousness and start talking about the Jews in the New Testament as if none of them believed in Jesus and gave their lives for Him and ultimately for us? Where's the love of Jesus and the love of Paul? Where's the love of God through us for his cherished people, the Jews, gone. Should that love be a hallmark of any follower of Jesus? You know, I, I'll share a question with you that's been haunting me all week. Maybe you can help me work through it. I don't know that I quite have. Paul, throughout his life, went to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. This was God's plan all along, beginning even back in Genesis when he comes to Abram, the father, Abraham, the father of the Jews, when he tells Abraham that through his descendants, all nations, Gentiles would be blessed. There's the pattern. Abraham, the Jew first, and through him and his descendants, all nations will be blessed, ultimately through Jesus. And that plan, Jew first and then Gentile, is repeated in the Gospels, in Matthew in particular. You hear it in the words of Jesus himself. You see it in action throughout Jesus' life and ministry and Paul's life and ministry. And the question bothering me all week is this. Whatever happened to God's plan of Jew first and then Gentile? Who decided that this plan of action for Christian missions ended? We just sort of assumed, it seems to me. 
that this plan of Jew first and then Gentile somehow ran its course during the first few decades of the early church. And that now it's pretty much just Gentiles we're supposed to reach with the good news. Where's the biblical support for that stunning conclusion? Might not the biblical principle, if not mandate, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles still stand? Who decided that was no longer a good idea? And yet, how many churches do you know whose missions include trying to reach Jews specifically, let alone first? Paul never gave up on those God loves, which is everyone, (laughs) including Paul's fellow Jews. And through that love and commitment, the Holy Spirit used Paul to turn the world upside down for Jesus. Maybe, if we never give up on anyone God loves, which is still everyone, it would turn upside down for Jesus again. Well, I hope so. May it be so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us the example this morning of the Apostle Paul, of someone, of someone whose love relentlessly wins out over frustration and hate even against those who oppose him, persecute him, get him expelled, and try to kill him, even against those. Thank you for allowing us to see that in Paul, because when we see that in Paul, we see Jesus, who did the same. And, oh, Father, we desperately want to be like that, but we can't do it on our own. And, Father, I pray for a a new anointing of the Holy Spirit in and among all of us here this morning. An anointing of the Spirit that would help loosen any grips of frustration or discouragement or hate or prejudice and allow us to feel genuine and deep love and compassion for everyone, even our enemies who don't yet know You and call You Abba, Father. Would You help us to love like that? Send us our Barnabases to help encourage us to love like that. Send us again Your Holy Spirit. We love You deeply, Father. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, the Messiah. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you as you go this week. If you would like to pray with someone, as always, please come down to the front. Maybe there's a relationship that you need prayed over, maybe for any reason at all. Someone would love to pray with you, so come on down.